All grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before moving up here to beautiful Ventura County, and it is exceptionally beautiful after all those rains, right? Anywhere you drive, you see those green hills. Makes you feel like you're in Ireland or something. But I can't believe it's been almost 30 years now that we moved up here. We used to live about a bit south um, in Orange County. Specifically, I spent 20 years in a little town of 20,000 people called Brea, Brea, California. Now, not to be confused with La Brea, the latter being known for its famous dinosaur fossils, right, preserved in those ancient tar pits in L.A. Brea means tar, by the way, and so to refer to the La Brea tar pits, it's redundantly redundant, just for the record. You're actually saying the, the tar, tar pits. That's when you translate it. That's how it comes out. Well, everyone makes that mistake. Just like everyone made the mistake of thinking I grew up near the prehistoric part of L.A. whenever I told them I was from Brea. But little old Brea, Orange County, didn't have anything famous, no dinosaur bones, nothing like that going for it to put it on the map. Nope, little old... Orange County, Brea, didn't really have anything much to boast of until, until, I remember I was in junior high, about halfway through the 1970s, one of Hollywood's hottest comedy duos of that era, they showed up to little old Brea. And I'm talking about Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. You guys remember those guys? Um, they showed up to film just a short five-minute segment of a new movie that was coming out, and they filmed it right by the Brea Railroad tracks. And that was fitting because the movie that came out in 1976 with those guys in it was called Silver Streak, about a train. And it incidentally made the American Film Institute's list of top 100 best comedies of all time. So not too bad. And that finally put little Brea in Orange County on the map. Just barely. Not even 15 minutes worth of fame, just barely five minutes worth of fame. But we brands at the time, we proudly took it and we ran with it. And ironically, today, those old railroad tracks are gone and they've turned that whole section into a running course. So that's all you see people from Bray doing there nowadays, running. They really ran with it. But each town, every land is unique. And these places all have their own stories to tell, don't they? Their own histories to recount. Just like the places in which you were all born or were raised, they have their stories too, I'm sure. And that's what we're getting at with Isaiah the prophet today, looking at our Old Testament reading. We learn there about two lands that Isaiah goes on to specify by name, along with the name of their very special long-awaited visitor who changes everything for them. When Isaiah speaks his prophetic word of hope, it's a word of liberty there in chapter 9 for our reading today, it's a prophetic word that's shaped by geographical location. Specifically, Isaiah mentions the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Says the prophet, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, God brought into contempt the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the latter time, 
He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. But what land exactly are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a portion of the promised land. That is the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The story of how the Israelites came to possess this whole area called the promised land. It's told in the book of Joshua, the first 12 chapters. And after God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he guided them up to the borders of the promised land by Moses' hand. But as you recall, Moses won't cross into that promised land himself. However, he dies, and Joshua, the next appointed leader of Israel, he leads the Israelites across the Jordan River and right into the promised land to conquer it. All the action-packed details of this step-by-step conquest, it's fascinating and it's engaging. Like I said, you can read about it in Joshua chapters 1 through 12. But when you get to Joshua chapter 13, that rapid-paced storytelling gives way to some more sleep-inducing details of how the 12 tribes of Israel were allotted each their portion of the promised land. So we won't go through all that, but Zebulun is one of those of the 12 tribes, as is Naphtali. So yes, these two half-brothers were therefore sons of Jacob, Israel. Now they're allotted neighboring lands with respect to each other in northern Israel. So you can kind of think of them, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, kind of like Minnesota and Wisconsin, who were up in the northern parts of the states, and they're sharing a border. Zebulun and Naphtali are beautiful, and they're very fertile landscapes, but their location in the northern part there of Israel unfortunately made them very vulnerable to alien invaders. And I'm not talking about extraterrestrials or New Mexico spaceships. Of course, I'm talking about outsiders, that kind of alien, foreign invaders. So they had more than their fair share of conquering armies and military incursions those two northern parts. You see, when any foreign country had their eyes set on Israel to invade it, uh, those attacks almost always came down from the north, since that was the easiest way to break into the whole land of Israel. The Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, which flows south from the Sea of Galilee, they form a natural barrier on Israel's eastern edge, so you don't want to go that way. Then the Mediterranean Sea forms a natural barrier to the west of Israel, and thus alien invaders who are looking to go south to Jerusalem or maybe even all the way to Egypt, such invaders first funnel their way through the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali on the northern border. And that history then becomes now part of their land's narration and reputation, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. So the realtors were right. Even way back then in those days, it's location, location, location. Owing to Israel's lay of the land then, the tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali were perpetually front lines of war and bloodshed. This is what is meant from verse 1 in our Isaiah text. In the former time, God brought into contempt the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. In fact, at the time of uh, Isaiah's prophecy, the invading Assyrians are in the very process 
of conquering Zebulun and Naphtali. Within a few years, the entire northern kingdoms of Israel will go. They will be completely overthrown. And even the remaining southern kingdom of Judah will be brought low to its knees before the Lord steps in to miraculously spare Judah, at least for the time being. 150 years or so, Nebuchadnezzar is raised up to take care of them. But Zebulun and Naphtali then are rightly identified by Isaiah as lands upon which the Lord brought contempt. They were a constantly conquered people, burdened, beaten, and battered. You know, that sounds eerily descriptive of the emotional state of many people today. Burdened, beaten, and battered. Maybe you felt like that. And these tribes indwelt a place you could definitely call a land of deep darkness and shadow. So bad off were they that just a few verses earlier in Isaiah chapter 8, he called them a land with no dawn that suffers the gloom of anguish, quote-unquote. Remember, it was God who brought these alien invaders upon the land only because Israel had abandoned their true God. They had fallen into all sorts of idolatry, and they were engaging in all kinds of sin and evil. So Zebulun and Naphtali were a land of contempt, filled with the people who sat and walked and dwelt in the darkness of their deeds, deeds damned by God. It is to these hopeless people that Isaiah speaks this word of hope that we get from his um, book today. Isaiah speaks of a stunning reversal of their fortunes. God intends to make this land of contempt now glorious. But how? How will this land go from contemptuous to glorious? Answer, invasion. Yep, it's another invasion. The change has to come from entirely outside of them. That is, it must be alien to them, Sibulin and Naphtali. God will bring upon them, yes, another alien invader. Except this time, it won't be a nation that will infiltrate the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. No, this time it will be one man. And he doesn't come down from the north either, like all the other alien invaders did. This man comes down from heaven. So he's not even on their two-dimensional map. You need that, I think it's called the Z uh, vertex. This man from heaven God's eternal son, it's Jesus Christ, as foretold by Isaiah in today's reading. His is a different kind of alien invasion. Jesus takes no hostages. He plunders no grain. He exacts no taxes, and he sheds no one's blood except his own. Instead, Jesus comes teaching and preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's this man and the good news on his lips who is a great light upon this land of deep darkness. The good news is the Lord isn't interested in keeping or holding down this land in contempt any longer, though they had everything that they had coming to them. Jesus isn't looking, though, to extract from Nebula, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali their land's greatest resources. No. He's looking to redeem their greatest resources, and those resources being, namely, the people themselves. Jesus is driven 
to redeem all of them. The more Jesus preaches, the more Jesus teaches, the more he serves, and the brighter his light shines in that dark land. The evangelist Matthew says, So Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them all. What an invasion, right? People are flowing into Zebulun and Naphtali now, not to conquer them, but to be rescued themselves by this prophesied one right there in the midst of them. As the light of Jesus Christ increases, the true source of darkness is further exposed, though. The light shines on the darkness, and the light forces us to begin to deal with that darkness. The greatest threat to the people of Zebulun and Naphtali was never alien invaders from the north. The greatest threat to the people of Zebulun and Naphtali was never alien to them at all. The greatest threat was their own sin and darkness within and the prospect of death and the schemes of the wily deceiver, the evil one, the devil. These are the things that held Zebulun and Naphtali down in perpetual darkness. These were the real forces of oppression in their lives, and these are the real forces of oppression in our own lives too, aren't they? These age-old enemies of the human race. And these are the oppressors from which Jesus can rescue all of us. Jesus, like any alien invader, comes down and makes a claim upon his people. He's claiming to be their Lord, their God, and he's directing them to acknowledge his father as the true king. That's called repentance. So then they will not be won over by oppression because his is a kingdom of freedom. They will not be won over by threats because his is a kingdom of grace. They will not be won over by fear because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of love. And it is God's love that will break the yoke of every burden. It is God's love that will break the rod of the oppressor. And it is God's love that will compel Jesus to go southbound out of Zebulun and Naphtali all the way to the city of Jerusalem in order to claim their sins and ours as his own and to die on that cross waiting for him on Calvary. And when Jesus dies on the cross, Zebulun and Naphtali will not be the only ones to experience darkness and gloom once more, as darkness will cover the whole land of Israel for the space of those three hours when Jesus does die for the world's sins. This darkness doesn't linger, though. It dissipates, and in three days' time, it will scatter forever in the presence of the resurrected Son of God. So now the light that first shone in Galilee among the people of Zebulun and Naphtali and all the Gentiles up there, this light is invading the entire world. You and I may not share the geographical particulars with Zebulun and Naphtali, and thanks be to God, most, if not all of us here, won't suffer a physical attack from alien invaders, but the darkness that engulfed Zebulun and Naphtali doesn't care about these geographical borders, does it? Because it's universal. It isn't an alien darkness at all. The darkness that we have is local, 
homegrown. It's the enemy within, the enemy indeed that is ourselves. From liberation from that kind of darkness, Isaiah tells us all to look back to Zebulun and Naphtali for hope, the same hope that they had, because there a great light has shown. This light is Jesus Christ as he claims that himself. I am the light of the world. His forgiveness and ongoing ministry for all peoples of all times and all places. This light's for you. This light's for me. It invades your life, even fills the dark recesses of your deceitful hearts. The salvation first seen in Galilee now comes for you and comes for me, powered by that very same love and compassion. Indeed, it's already here. Jesus Christ is here for you, for me, and he expels the darkness, your darkness and mine. He forgives your sins. He casts out the devil, and he promises to raise you from the dead. He promises beauty for ashes. Jesus Christ, the true light, is the alien invasion that we all need and that we all get by simply trusting in him. To him, therefore, be all praise, honor, and glory, both now and forever. Amen. And now may he who began this good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.